Today we're going to be talking about this idea of trusting Christ's heart even when we can't see His hand. And our scripture this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 3. So if you turn there with me, Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 1, this is what it says in that, that passage of God's Word. It says, Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning. We're so grateful for the opportunity that you give to us to be able to look at what you've communicated and what you've divinely inspired to be passed along to us. Lord, we know that in your word, you reveal yourself to us. We have the opportunity not only to understand more about your will, but more about who you are. We learn more about your nature. We learn more about your desire for a relationship with humanity. You created us in your image. You designed us for relationship with you. And we know, Lord, that apart from your intervention, we would be lost and we would not be experiencing that relationship. But we're so grateful for the work that your son, Jesus Christ, accomplished as you send him to this earth. And during the course of his earthly ministry, we see so many things taking place that just illustrate the hardness of heart that we as human beings have toward you. And Lord, we see that in this portion of your word today as well. So Lord, we pray that you prepare our minds and our hearts to understand what we're reading together, what we're studying together today. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our walk with you as a result. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us right now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, and I was trying to think how many years ago this was. This is probably about 20 years ago, if I had to guess correctly. Um, but years ago, on a Sunday morning, I was teaching an adult Sunday school class. And the class would meet after the normal worship service in the main sanctuary of the church that I was serving at at the time. And because of the number of people that attended, what I would do was I would, instead of making like a circle of chairs or sitting at tables or things like that, I would actually just take a podium and I would pull it up to one side of the sanctuary and everybody would sit on that side of the sanctuary and I would teach the class. And I had been doing that essentially every Sunday for a period of years. And so my routine was kind of locked in my mind at that point. My routine in doing that was very rarely interrupted. I knew what I could expect. I even knew the people that were most likely to answer questions, the people that uh, did not like to answer questions. My grandmother was one of the people that was in that class. She lived five minutes from the church I was serving at the time, and she warned me when I became pastor there and she started attending there. She said, I'm, I'm just warning you right now, do not call on me during Sunday school. Do not do that to me. She hated public speaking in any capacity, and uh, she said, don't, don't do that, and I, I honored Nana's request, all right? But she was one of the people in the class I knew, don't call on Nana, but I also knew there were other people that, that would you know, give answers and responses. 
And so I had kind of a routine and, and a, a certain way that I understood that that class would go. But on one particular Sunday, there was something that noticeably changed, and it directly impacted my ability to teach that day. Right as I was preparing to stand at the podium, I lost hearing in my left ear. And I was like, what is going on? I lost hearing in my left ear, and I thought, well, this, this isn't good. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that before, but if you have, you could testify, it's certainly not enjoyable. And uh, I remember I, I tapped my ear a few times, and I thought, what, like, what's going on with this? And I was trying to, like, wiggle my ear, like, you know, clearly demonstrating I have no medical knowledge whatsoever, right? Maybe if I turn it like this, maybe if I do this. None of those things seemed to make it work properly again. But I still felt compelled to teach the class, but I remember before I taught the class, I said to them, I warned them, I might not be able to hear your questions, and I might not be able to hear your responses. You have to speak up a little bit extra. There's something going on with my left ear. I can't hear out of my left ear. I'm not sure what's happening. And when the, the class ended, I remember spending the rest of the day trying to figure out if there was a way that I could solve that problem. Just trying to, like, is there, is there some sort of, if I go to the drugstore, can I get something? Like, is there an over-the-counter remedy or just something I could do that's going to make this ear work the way that I expected it to, to work? But nothing was working. Nothing I tried. No suggestion uh, that anyone gave me was working. And so first thing that Monday morning, I went to our family doctor, and I just asked him, could you take a look at this ear and see what's going on with this. I've never had this happen to me before. And I won't disturb you with the details, okay? I'm just not going to disturb you with the details. Tracy, are you happy that I'm not going to disturb you with the details? Um, but thankfully, it was a problem he was able to solve. And what he did was he prescribed certain drops. So there was, a, uh, you know, certain drops that I needed to put in my ear. And he said, you're going to have to do this for five days. You're really just, like, just every day, I'm going to need you to do this for five days. And then he scheduled a, a follow-up visit that included a small procedure that he believed was going to restore my hearing in that ear. So I did what he recommended. And a few days later, I went back to him, and he tried the procedure, and it worked. Everything worked. My, my ear felt good as new. My hearing was restored. Uh, I was very, very grateful for that. Now, admittedly, when something like that happens, it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, but it's not necessarily a life-threatening concern. If my hearing was not restored, I obviously could have continued to proceed with life. I'd have to make some adjustments and figure things out in a different way. But I can't tell you how, it, I, like, when I have to express just how grateful I was to have my hearing back after going most of a week without it in one ear, it caused me to be able to, it caused me to appreciate being able to hear out of that ear in a new way. I was just really, really grateful for it. And I often think about it because going a week without being able to hear, I noticed how much I appreciated that ear working. Now, here's the thing when it comes to medical concerns, some medical concerns are common enough that a wise doctor can look at them and diagnose them correctly and prescribe a remedy or perform a remedy on them, and it's going to work. Then other medical needs are a little more complex. So some things can just be remedied quickly, other things a bit more complex. Some are so severe or unique that a natural remedy doesn't exist, that there's not something that you could do that's just a natural remedy that's going to fix whatever the concern happened to be. And when we look at Mark chapter 3, the portion of Scripture that we just read together, in that portion of Scripture, we're told of a man who had that kind of a need that a natural remedy wasn't going to be able to fix. We're told that he had a hand 
that was withered, and I would assume that as it's describing that, it's basically telling us this hand was also unusable. So if it's a withered hand, I think, I think the idea here is that it's an unusable hand at this point that basically looks like a hand that, that is, is dying visibly right there on his body. There's no natural remedy for that. There isn't something you could just you know, go to a store or just fix naturally. Now, in our present day, I would imagine that there may be certain procedures or surgeries we might attempt to try to make it a little bit more usable than it would be in its natural withered condition. But even still, that's not a remedy that can bring full restoration. The kind of remedy that can bring full restoration in a context like that needs to be a divinely orchestrated, miraculous intervention. That's something that requires a legit miracle from the hand of God. And that's exactly what took place here. In fact, when you look at these verses here, In verses 1 and 2, it sets it up. In Mark chapter 3, it says, again, so it's speaking of Jesus, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So that's how this scripture sets up, is this man comes with a withered hand, and Jesus is there and sees this, and they want to see what's Jesus going to do for this guy with a withered hand, and, they, and it tells us that this was taking place on the Sabbath, and people were watching, they wanted to accuse him. Now, during the course of his earthly ministry, you've noticed, even though we're early in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would regularly visit local synagogues. This was one of the main places he would visit. Sometimes he would teach there. Uh, Other times he would heal or cast out demons. Now, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus enters the synagogue, and again, it tells us this is on a Sabbath, and he encounters a man with this withered hand. And when you read Luke's gospel, he gives us an account of this in in Luke chapter 6, and Luke gives more specifics. Luke, by the way, was a physician, so some of the medical details he gives in that gospel are, are a little extra specific, but Luke happens to add the added information that this was the man's right hand. So we know from reading Luke's gospel actually which hand it was. Uh, Mark just tells us hand. Luke says it was his right hand. Now, for the majority of people, that's the dominant hand. Uh, Raise your hand if you are a righty. All right, now put your hands down. Raise your hand if you're a lefty. All right, there's more of you than I thought there was. All right, Um, I feel a bit intimidated by this. By the way, both of... (laughs) Both of, I'm a righty, but both of my sons are lefties, all right? Their great-great-grandfather was a lefty, so it skips a few generations, uh, but they're both lefties. I tried to fix that for them, you know? I tried to correct that, and their mother said, you can't fix if someone's a righty or a lefty, and she wouldn't even let me try. So those of you that are lefties, you're like, wait a second, are you saying that there's something wrong with us? Yes, absolutely, there's something wrong with you. There are many things wrong with you. That's why we gather here. There's many things wrong with me, too. I'm the perfect pastor for lefty parishioners, all right? Anyway, uh, in this portion of Scripture, there's this man, right hand, most likely his dominant hand, and it's not working. But now, when you look at the things that took place in the previous chapters, you see that Jesus had already healed people from some very serious medical conditions, things that there's no remedy for, things that people couldn't just find a way to be healed from. And so he has a reputation in the community, in the region, as one who could miraculously heal. That reputation is now firmly established, and so people would often, they would watch for him to do this. 
They were, it was expected that he would do this. They would look for him to perform miraculous acts on others because they knew he had this capacity. They've already seen it. It's, at this point now, it's not even so much a matter of faith because they're looking at it. They've already seen him do it. They, they know people that he's healed. And so they're just looking to see if he's going to do it again. And that's precisely what happens in this context. They want to see if he's going to do it again. Oh, there's someone with a very obvious physical limitation. Will he help this man out? He's helped other people. I bet you he helps him. Do you think he's going to help him? Yeah, he's going to help him. I bet you he helps him. They're debating this. They're watching to see what he's going to do. They wonder if he's going to be inclined to heal this man with the right hand that's withered, that, uh, just like he's healed other people. Now, for some people, as this was all taking place, they weren't joyful over healings. Their big issue with the fact that a healing might even take place at this point in, in time was the fact that, it, that this was a Sabbath day, that this was all taking place on the Sabbath day. Now, when you read through the Old Testament uh, regulations and requirements. The Sabbath day was a day that was set apart as a day by the Lord. He set it apart as a day of rest. And he said, honor it. Honor that as a day of rest. It was a day that the people were supposed to rest from their labors, and they were supposed to honor the Lord in worship. In, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish custom, happened on the seventh day, right? This is how the Lord uh, orchestrated it. So that was on Saturdays. They would do that on the Saturdays. And uh, by the way, do you know that the, of the Ten Commandments, the only one not repeated in the New Testament is the regulation related to the Sabbath? I don't know if you ever noticed that, a little bit of trivia. I don't know if it'll help you win something. Uh, but it's the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. But the New Testament tells us this. It tells us for a believer, every day is the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean don't do any work? <laughs> Some people are like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> like, what? Why do I even go to my job, you know? Uh, and by the way, I tried to trick my pastor growing up with this. I was like, hey, you know, doesn't the Bible say don't work on a Sunday? But I see you work every Sunday. And he's like, oh, really? He said, tell you what, show me in the Bible where it says that, and then I'll stop working on Sunday if you can show me where it says that. And I was like, aren't you just supposed to know that stuff? Doesn't it say that? He's like, just find it for me, and then, and then let me know. And I was like, wait, does it say that? <laughs> uh, but under the New Covenant... We're told every day is the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Well, the greater illustration being illustrated by this whole idea of a Sabbath rest is the fact that we don't have to work to earn the gift of salvation. That's given to us as a gift through Jesus Christ, by grace through faith. And any day that you and I live is a day that we can rest in the work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. That's the deeper purpose of this whole concept of the Sabbath. And in the New Testament, it outlines, uh, outlines that for us, and it shows us that that's the deeper purpose. So when it's not repeated in the New Testament, it's because you see a deeper fulfillment of the concept of the Sabbath. Every day for us is supposed to be the Sabbath, meaning every day is a day I should rejoice in the work that Christ has accomplished on my behalf. I don't have to earn the favor of God. I don't have to do the work that provides for my own redemption. I could never do that work. I can rest, however, in the fact that Jesus did that work for me. But in this context here, they're not thinking about deeper spiritual meanings. They're not thinking about how these things are meant to point us to the Messiah. They're basically just looking at this and they're saying, look, it's the Sabbath day. So in their context, seventh day, Saturday. And they said, well, you know, the Old Testament law teaches us that we're not supposed to work on this day. And so they're watching to see what Jesus would do on a Sabbath 
day. Again, Sabbath being set apart by the Lord is a day of rest, a day when people were supposed to just take a break from their labors, but like we've done with so many of the good things that the Lord has blessed us with throughout the course of history, we have a habit of corrupting even something like a day of rest and treating it like it's a punitive thing. And that's what they were doing in this context. The Pharisees in particular, this religious group that wanted everybody to think they were so dedicated and so spiritual, and yet you look at what they were doing, and basically they're just basically trying to oppose everything the Messiah is doing. And so instead of rejoicing over Jesus' miraculous ability to heal, they equated that blessing with the work of a physician going about his daily tasks of medical care. They're saying, look, this is like what a physician does, and he shouldn't be doing it on a Sabbath day. If he's going to do it, he could, there's other days, there's six other days of the week to heal that man. Why doesn't he just do it on those days? He's acting like a physician at work. He shouldn't be doing these things. And so because they were hard-hearted opportunists, who were really irritated because Jesus had now started exposing them as religious frauds. They looked at him, and they wanted to use this as an opportunity to accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker. They wanted to bring accusation against him because he had been exposing their motives, and knowing the depths of their selfishness, knowing the depths of their depravity, I love what Jesus does in this passage. He asks them a question he knows they won't be willing to answer. So look at how this plays out in verses 3 and 4 of Mark chapter 3. It says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. So the guy comes over to Jesus. And he said to them, Is it lawful? So he's, he's got the man right there with him, and he's presenting him to them. And, he, and this is all a setup from their perspective. But it says, And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill? So that's the question Jesus asks. And he knows they're not going to answer it. And what, what does it tell us? But they were silent. They were silent. These religious authorities, they were silent. They didn't say a word. I love that Jesus did this. And by the way, there's, there's some instruction there for us. If you ever find yourself in a spot, like many of you already are, where you're teaching, you ever use this approach when you're teaching? Uh, from 2012 to 2018, I had the opportunity to serve as a professor over at Cairn University, and I would primarily teach classes on theology or church leadership and church planting uh, or biblical counseling. A lot of the classes I taught were on counseling. And uh, I took a several-year break from doing so, but this past year, I got back involved in doing so, so I became a professor again, and in addition to teaching some of those subjects, I've started to also teach classes on digital media and communications and things like that. And one of my favorite teaching techniques when uh, I'm facilitating a class is to just ask deeper level questions before giving the information that I want to give. Ask it in the form of a question. Now, there are a few people in the room here that are in some of the classes that I teach, so they could tell you I do that. They might even say, he probably does it too much. I don't know. I like doing it, though. And uh, I think it's an interesting way, in a teachable context like that, to encourage students to engage in what I consider introspective thought. So something that has you wrestle with something in your head and your heart so that you kind of take a side on it 
before someone else gives you what they believe is the correct answer. To me, that's a useful way to communicate something. And when you look at what Jesus would do throughout the course of his earthly ministry, when he would interact with crowds or when he would interact with critics, he frequently would incorporate introspective questions into his time of teaching. And also, he would make a point, he kind of one-ups this, he would also use these introspective questions when he was actually seeking to expose the motives of the people who were coming against him. And he would ask a question instead of directly saying something, because even if they didn't answer, their lack of answer, their unwillingness to commit to a position would demonstrate the hardness of their hearts. And in certain contexts, like we see here in Mark chapter 3, he was also demonstrating that his critics were duplicitous cowards, that they had motives that weren't for the people, they had motives that were against the people because they were primarily for themselves. They didn't want to make their convictions really known in the public sphere. What they wanted to do was work behind the scenes to try and get their way. And Jesus was able to show that they lacked compassion in asking this question. Jesus was able to show that even, again, even though they did not respond verbally, he was able to show that they were, that they were bent on destroying while he was restoring. And it's an amazing contrast because he looks at these Pharisees and he asks them, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? Now, again, he knows they're not going to respond. But when he asked them if it was proper to save life or kill on that day of the week, and he knew that they remained silent, he also knew that they were going to, at the, you know, when he says, is it lawful, the way he phrases it, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He's asking them that question knowing that it's in their heart to kill him. So they're criticizing him about whether or not he keeps a Sabbath day, and they're trying to portray to everybody that they're holy. But he says, really, uh, you know, if you're criticizing me about my desire or my willingness to heal this man, I just want to know from you, is it lawful to do good on this day or, or should we do evil? Is it lawful on this day to save life or to kill? Because I know how you're going to use today. I know how you're going to use the Sabbath. You're going to use this day, at least in part, to plot my execution, to try and figure out a way to kill me, and yet you criticize me. This is what Jesus is essentially getting at when you read between the lines of what he's saying. You criticize me for wanting to heal this man, and yet you're going to spend part of this day plotting to kill me. So he's restoring, they're destroying and it's an amazing contrast to think about. And then you jump to verse 5 and verse 6, and it says, and he looked around at them. Notice this. We're going to get, come back to this in a moment, but he says, with anger. So it says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved. So he's angered and grieved in that moment. But it says, and he looked around at them with, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I think that's fascinating to read. So like Jesus had done for others, he heals this man's hand. 
The man's hand was restored. I get the impression his hand was restored so that it was like it had never been damaged to begin with. This was a visible, beautiful, miraculous thing. A miracle right in front of them. Now, technically speaking, when you look at what Jesus did, it says, he said, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. That's what he says. Stretch out your hand. So technically speaking, all Jesus had done was speak a few words. We want to be technical, right? Does that seem like backbreaking work? Also, isn't it kind of interesting when you look at what, what Scripture tells us, that that's how creation was created? Through Jesus Christ, it was spoken into existence. Scripture also reveals to us that he sustains creation with his powerful word. So it's amazing how Jesus can just speak something and it's so. And he says to the man, that's all he does. He doesn't, he doesn't touch the man's hand here. He doesn't, uh, you know, massage his arm in preparation. He doesn't do anything that you would look at and say is a visible demonstration of work. He just looks at the man and says, stretch out your hand. But now he's about to be castigated as one who had actually broke the Sabbath. They're going to use this against him as one who's broken the Sabbath. But really all he's done is he said, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand was healed. Now, deep down, you know and I know that the Pharisees knew Jesus had not done something wrong. They knew he hadn't done something wrong. Uh, They were looking at technicalities and trying to figure out a way that they could bring accusation against him. They weren't really concerned with whether he had done something right or wrong. They just wanted to know, can we make it look bad? Can we make this stick? If something else doesn't stick, can we make this stick, right? The point of what they were up to wasn't to get to the truth. The point of what they were doing was just trying to bring harm against him and stop him because what Jesus was doing in the midst of that culture was he was revealing their poor motives. He was making it very obvious that that they were not the people that they were presenting themselves to be. And he wasn't afraid to confront them in public. And that's the thing. Everybody was afraid to confront them in public. These were the type of people that seemed to have the moral high ground and they weren't afraid to kind of throw that spiritual weight around. They, They had authority, they had influence in their culture and they were very defensive and protective of it. And they weren't used to people confronting them about these very things. And their minds were made up long before Jesus ever healed this man. But they didn't like the fact that Jesus was exposing their motives. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was not afraid to confront them in public. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself in a spot like that? Where you encounter somebody who is used to just getting their own way. And they're not really used to somebody calling them out. And they're not really used to somebody pointing something out that they don't want to hear. And then you decide, because you just can't live with yourself if you don't, that you're going to be the one that stands up to them and tries to right the wrong. You ever find yourself in that that context? How do people respond? There are several moments in my life where that's very much been the approach that I decided to take, that I felt compelled to take. And in almost every context... I've noticed the same thing. When people are confronted in a context like that, they practically lose their mind. They're just so unused to it. And their goal, you'll confront with the truth, but then their goal is going to try and be be to paint you in a light that somehow is going to reduce your authority. So you're going to bring out the truth, 
and you're going to be on the receiving end of unfair critique or um, just attacks against your character or whatever it may be, and that's exactly what you see Jesus dealing with. He's not pointing out something that's untrue. He's pointing out something that's true. He's confronting people that don't like to be confronted, people that have poor motives, but he's addressing this here, and they don't like this one bit. And when Jesus is observing this, this deep hardness of heart, this aversion to the truth, it's fascinating that the Scripture reveals to us that he was both angered and sad. Now, do you think you could be angry and it be okay? Is there a moment that you can be angry and it's okay? A lot of times in our humanness, our anger doesn't come out in a very positive way. It's, more e- it's much easier in my life, and I'm sure in your life, for me to find moments where my anger came out in an unhealthy way, where I'm like, yeah, that wasn't a good moment for anger, or I didn't express anger in a healthy way in that moment. But there are moments where you can express a righteous kind of anger, The idea, though, is that we not hold on to it so that it becomes bitterness, because if it becomes bitterness, it turns into hatred. Hatred leads to murder, and even if it doesn't get to full-fledged physical murder, it can result in murder taking place in your heart that just makes you a bitter, unforgiving person, and it's a very unhealthy spot to land. So it's a dangerous emotion in some respects, but there is a righteous anger. And so when Christ here is expressing anger... He's not expressing something unrighteous. This is very much righteous anger. He's angry at their hard-heartedness, but he's also grieved. I don't know if uh, the men in this room will forgive me for for revealing this about us, but I'm going to reveal something about men that is true. But some some men already know this about themselves. Some men don't. Uh, Maybe some women already know this, but I'm sure there are some women that don't. So I'm going to call us out, men, and I hope it's okay. But if it's not okay, I just won't greet people after the service. I'll just go the other direction. Do you ever, as a man, realize that, culturally speaking, it's safe for you to express anger, but it's not really safe for you to express grief in some context because you're afraid that people might think that you're weak? You know, that, that if you shed a tear or express emotion in that direction, that doesn't look as masculine as you hoped that it would. You know what I've discovered over the years? Most of the time, it's not all the time, but most of the time that I've heard other men, including myself, express anger, if you scratch beneath the obvious and you just go a little bit deeper, what you realize is that guy's really sad about that. It comes out as anger. It's really sadness. So a lot of times for us as men, when we express anger, if you want to know what's really going on behind the scenes, those are our tears sometimes. And if you scratch a little bit at it, maybe you shouldn't, but if you kind of scratch a little bit deeper, you'll find out something that we're kind of sad about. And I found it very interesting this week to just, in my preparation for today, I just kind of paused on what this, I don't know that I ever noticed it before. I don't remember ever really having that catch my attention the way it did this week, where it talked about the fact that in that moment, you have Jesus expressing anger and he grieved. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what we do, isn't it, in some respects? Sometimes we're angry, but our anger is really, 
it's a form of grief that we just feel like it's safer to show it as anger, but in our private moments, it comes out as grief. And their hardness of heart here, it tells us it both angered and grieved Jesus. And again, anger and grief may seem like drastically different emotions, but they're very complementary. In many respects, they can be the exact same thing. And, you know, I, I think there are emotions that we often feel when we're dealing with people we care about. It's not that Jesus didn't care about the Pharisees. He cared about them. He cared about all the Jewish people in the context of which he was doing his ministry. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to come to faith. He wanted them to realize their long-promised Messiah was right there in their midst. In fact, when you look at Jesus' triumphal entry, and he, he enters into Jerusalem prior to uh, the week where he's arrested and then crucified and all those, things happen, all those things happen, you have the shortest verse in the Bible where it tells us, Jesus wept. Right? He wept as he, look, as he looks out over Jerusalem, and he just thinks, oh, if you only knew what would have brought you peace. If you only knew, you reject it. You look at me, and you just, you just, you just reject it. You, know, you even see Jesus. So you see Jesus weeping over Lazarus, and Lazarus, uh, even though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, you see him weeping. You see Jesus weeping as he comes into Jerusalem. And the triumphal entry communicates these things. What's he doing? He's looking at people that are just caught up in a mindset of death, mindset of confusion. You know, when someone you love, like a close friend or a relative or even one of your children makes a destructive decision, what emotions come out? Is it sometimes anger? Is it sometimes grief? Is it sometimes both? I know for me it's both. And again, you look at Jesus here, he's, he cares for the Jewish people deeply. He's their long-promised Messiah, comes to rescue them, only to be rejected by their religious leaders, and their rejection provokes his grief and his anger. And the Scripture goes on to tell us that the Pharisees left that place intent on destroying Jesus. They even went as far as to collaborate, it tells us here, with the Herodians, who were a Jewish political party. And that group of people, they wanted to restore King Herod the Great's line to the throne, the Herodians were also people who, who largely cooperated with the Roman government and the Roman government's control of Jewish lands and, and the Jewish people. And under most circumstances, the Pharisees would want to have nothing to do with, with the Herodians and, and, uh, and just you know, how these people operated. But Jesus was someone they hated more than the Herodians. And so they're like, you know what, let's cooperate with the Herodians. They hated the Herodians a little less then they hated Jesus. And you look at this passage of Scripture, and there's a variety of things that I think we could take away from this as applications, but let me just suggest a few. You have the Pharisees here doing something that we could all find ourselves dangerously close to doing if we're not careful. The Pharisees elevated their will over the compassionate desires of Jesus. Have you ever done that? you ever elevated your own will over the compassionate desire of Christ? I think one of the greatest struggles that we face on this earth is a struggle to submit our will over to the, the holy will of God. And in, the, in those moments as we're struggling with these things, do we see our Lord as a compassionate Lord? Are we willing to trust Him when His will differs from our own? I think it's very easy to elevate our will over the compassionate desires of our Lord. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. And then here you have Jesus. He's openly healing the man, even though He knew it was going to subject him to attack. The Pharisees, they hid their motives because they didn't want to reveal the murderous intent of their hearts. 
And I look at that and I think, all right, on a personal level, do our actions display the depth of our convictions? Or do we also sometimes like to maybe try and hide what's really going on inside of us because we know it's not Christ-like? And I think, boy, you know, it's kind of easy to be a duplicitous person in this world. I think there's a caution for us here. Or how about this? Even before Jesus came into that space, they had intent to try and catch him with something that they could bring as an accusation against him. Maybe something they could make stick. And it makes me wonder, how often do we prejudge people or how often do we prejudge circumstances? Maybe because we've already got our minds up about something before it even happens. I can tell you I've made that mistake many times in my life when dealing with other people. Maybe you've done the same. I've also made this mistake in my walk with the Lord where I've prejudged things. Um, And I think, you know, wouldn't it be better if we just walked by faith in Jesus and trusted Him to work out all our circumstances for His glory and for our good? And to not prejudge circumstances or pre-decide how this is going to be or that's going to be or how this person's going to be or that person's going to be. You know, when you look at the Scripture and what Scripture reveals to us about Christ and His ministry, when Christ came to this earth, His desire was to see people trust Him. And likewise, in our generation right now, it remains God's desire for you and for me that we would learn to trust Him during our time here on this earth. Scripture makes it very clear that the Lord is pleased by what? Faith. Faith pleases Him. So the big lesson that you and I are supposed to be learning throughout the course of our life, if you're thinking like, what is this all about? Well, the big lesson from the spiritual standpoint that you and I are supposed to be learning is what does it look like to actually trust our God? What does it look like to actually trust Him in all circumstances, my highs, my lows, my in-between days? What does it look like to trust Him no matter what, in every context? That's the big lesson He wants you and me to learn during the course of our time on this earth. Faith pleases Him. And I wonder, can we trust Him even if we find ourselves in moments where we don't understand what he's doing. You know what I like? Predictability. I like when I know what's coming up. I'm not a a big fan of surprises, although I do like surprising other people. I just don't want to be on the receiving end of any surprises, right? But I like predictability. I like knowing... You know, everything fits in a a nice little box, linear lines. I like all that sort of stuff. My life has not fallen in, in those predictable lines in so many areas. And I always find myself like scratching my head and I'm thinking, wait a second, I thought this results in this, and this results in this, or that, that this would look like this at this spot, and this would look like this at another spot. Or, Lord, like, what's going on in this world? I look around at this world and I think, boy, this just seems, like, unsettling. And then I'm reminded, when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, and when I look at other Scriptures, I'm reminded, you know what the big lesson the Lord wants me to learn related to my own timetable, related to my own life, related to culture and circumstances, our country, what's going on in the world? He wants me to trust Him no matter what. He wants me to trust Him no matter what. With the things I think I can see, before they happen, and with the things that I totally guess wrong, with the things I feel like I could plan and predict, and the things that I have absolutely no control over. He just wants me to trust Him. That's a challenging thing to do, because to do so means we have to submit our will over to His. And yet our human nature says what? I want to call the shots. 
I want to chart the course. I want it to go exactly how I want it to go according to the timetable that I would prefer that produces the most comfort in my life and reduces the most uncertainty. That is not the lesson we're being taught in our life. We're taught to trust him no matter what. Tell you what, when we trust the Lord no matter what, we experience peace, and Scripture describes that as a peace that is so far beyond human understanding that people sometimes just don't get it. But it's a wonderful thing when we receive it. And I want to encourage us, because if you're like me, you look around sometimes at our culture and you scratch your head and you're like, this literally makes no sense, right? Like, this is insane. This literally makes no sense. Maybe you look at certain aspects of your life and you think, okay, this is not what I thought would be the case here or here. Why is that the case? And I want us to just understand the very lesson that the Lord's encouraging us to understand from his word. Just trust him no matter what. And I just want to finish with a quote that I think I've even referenced before. And if I haven't referenced it before, I meant to reference it before, all right? But if I didn't, let me make up for that today. I want to share this quote because I think about it a lot. So Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s that I just think was a really neat guy. And if you ever want to read some interesting things, read some of the stuff that he wrote. It's not boring. It's very interesting. And he wrote long books of advice to pastors. Uh, and he called them letters to my students. So he would train other pastors. Well, he's been deceased since the late 1800s. But I appreciate the fact that he wrote that stuff down because I found it helpful in my own life and ministry. And there's a quote that he said. He was a preacher over in, in England, over in London. Uh, was well known in his time. Um, he didn't live a long time, though. But this is what he said. He said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So if you're at a spot where you just can't figure out, if you're saying, like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Spurgeon's counsel is, yeah, you may be at a spot where you just can't trace his hand. Yeah, someday you'll be able to figure that out, but maybe today you can't. But if you can't trace his hand, you know what you can do? You can trust our Lord's character. You can trust his heart. And you can trust that whatever he's up to is going to be for your good. And it's going to be for his glory. And it's ultimately going to serve his redemptive purposes. Some things to keep in mind as we look at God's word and recognize that this was the le these were the lessons that Jesus was trying to invite that generation to understand, and many of them missed it. But here we are with the same opportunity they were given. So I pray that by God's grace, we don't miss it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word and to just see the things that you communicated in it. Lord, we're just so grateful for the fact that, that you do things that are just beyond our comprehension. And even in the midst of what you were doing at the time where your son was on this earth accomplishing his earthly ministry during that brief season of time, Lord, we know that so many people did not get it. They didn't understand it. And their confusion was coupled with a lack of trust. And so, Father, I pray that in our context, as we look around, and sometimes we're just thinking, I don't know what you're up to, we pray that even if we can't trace your hand, we would learn to trust your character, that we would, that we would trust your heart, that you are good. So, Lord, I'm grateful that you make that very clear to us the longer we walk with you. 
And I pray, Lord, that if anyone is struggling right now with just trying to wrestle with, maybe just trying to figure out what you're doing in their own individual life, let alone the culture, Lord, I pray that you'd encourage their hearts as well. Thank you again for these reminders from your word. Thank you for your presence with us. And thank you for the privilege to experience the softening of heart that your Holy Spirit accomplishes in our lives as he points us toward your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for all these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.